Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the June podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Pressure ulcers affect 2.5 million patients a year in the U.S. alone. Prioritize activity with the Centroid Patient Orientation and Activity Sensor. Centroid uses an advanced risk-based algorithm to monitor patient position and movement to help care teams prevent pressure injuries. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hello, and welcome to the June 2021 Editor's Commentary and Respiratory Care Podcast. I'm Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice paper addresses the issue of aerosol formation during oxygen therapy, including high-flow nasal cannula. Byrne et al. used laser light scattering and a particle counter to assess aerosol formation. An advantage of this trial over previous reports is that the human subjects were studied while receiving oxygen therapy. The authors conclude that high-flow nasal cannula in and of itself does not increase aerosol formation compared to standard oxygen therapy. Lee and Scott contributed an accompanying editorial concluding that high-flow nasal cannula is an unlikely aerosol-generating procedure and that high-flow nasal cannula alone does not increase the risk to caregivers. I think this is an important observation, but remember, patients who are on any kind of oxygen therapy who are able to cough or sneeze are able to produce aerosol into the room and you need to protect yourself. And whether or not high-flow nasal cannula or mass CPAP or NIV contributes to that remains to be seen. Chowder et al. provide a single-center retrospective review of mechanical ventilation and outcomes in COVID-19 with an emphasis on race and underserved populations. They reviewed the records of 128 critically ill subjects with COVID-19 over a two-month time frame. Nearly all the subjects, 97% of them, required intubation. 64% were black and 63% died in the hospitals. Subjects who died were less responsive to PEEP and FiO2, maintained a lower PO2 FiO2 ratio compared to survivors. This was not impacted by race. They concluded that black subjects had similar mortality rates from COVID-19, but differed in factors that were associated with an increased risk of death. In all races and ethnicities, subjects who died were older, had a positive fluid balance, and less improvement of PO2 FiO2 ratio, and higher PEEP and FiO2 requirement. Hapaglu opines that poor hospital outcomes begin in the inequities in social constructs leading to increased comorbidities in these groups. Shandell and others evaluated the success of the ROCKS index in predicting the need for intubation in COVID-19 in a multi-center retrospective trial. The ROCKS index, which is the SpO2-FiO2 ratio divided by the respiratory rate, has been shown to predict the success of high-flow nasal cannula in hypoxemic respiratory failure. Subjects were grouped into early and late high-flow nasal cannula failure. In nearly 300 subjects, they found that 60% were successfully treated with high-flow nasal cannula and that a ROC score greater than three in the first 12 hours predicted success. There were 61 early and 47 late high-flow nasal cannula failures and mortality after high-flow nasal cannula failure was 45%. They concluded that high-flow nasal cannula was a viable strategy and confirmed the value of the ROCS index. Verapapa et al. contributed an accompanying editorial highlighting the issues of early and late high-flow nasal cannula failure and the possible impact on outcomes. 
They note that early intubation in some patients is warranted owing to the severity of illness. I, this is something that I, I've heard a lot, people saying, well, high flow nasal cannula leads to late intubation and patients do worse, or high flow nasal cannula saves people from intubation. I think the simple fact of the matter is, if you're sick enough, you're gonna end up on the ventilator, and if you're sick enough to be on the ventilator, your mortality is gonna be greater than a patient who can be managed with either NIV or high flow nasal cannula. Kong et al. evaluated the use of bedside lung ultrasound, comparing ultrasound findings with computed tomography in subjects with COVID-19. A lung ultrasound score based on the presence of B-lines and pulmonary consolidation was developed. B-lines were identified in 97% of subjects and 83% demonstrated consolidation. They found an excellent correlation between lung injury score and CT scores. The authors suggest that ultrasound could serve as a non-invasive bedside tool to evaluate the severity of lung injury in COVID-19. I think, and we've said this before at the journal, lung ultrasound is gonna become more and more important in the intensive care unit and is a good skill for respiratory therapists to learn. Messina and colleagues reviewed their use of critical care outreach team and the use of respiratory support outside the ICU during COVID-19 surge in Italy. In the spring of 2020, 125 subjects were cared for by the outreach team. Non-invasive respiratory support, including high-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, and CPAP was provided on the floor, and no emergent intubations were required. The authors conclude that non-invasive respiratory support outside the ICU, under the supervision of a critical care team, was safe and effective in the midst of a surge. This is one of the groups from Lombardi that saw perhaps the greatest surge in the spring of 2020, and a paper that we might not always publish in respiratory care, but I think the message is very important um, in a surge situation that some patients can be managed outside of the intensive care unit if they have the expertise um, to care for those people. Alquatani et al. evaluated the interaction of binge drinking, e-cigarette use, and chronic lung disease. Using the behavioral risk factor surveillance system, they found e-cigarette use was higher in subjects with chronic lung disease and that binge drinking moderated e-cigarette use. The authors suggest further research to determine any cause and effect relationship. Jensen and coworkers evaluated the impact of pneumatic tube transport on blood gas and other analytes. Samples were analyzed after walking samples to the lab and following pneumatic tube transport. No clinical or significant differences were identified. McClellan et al. evaluated the impact of e-cigarette use and exposure to secondhand e-cigarette vapor. Subjects who vape developed increased heart rate, increased breathing frequency, and an increased oral temperature, as well as a decrease in oxygen saturation after 20 minutes. Subjects exposed to secondhand vapor had higher oral temperatures, but no other changes. These immediate physiologic changes may have long-term consequences. Colbreth and others evaluated the factors impacting dual use of e-cigarette and traditional cigarettes in adults. They evaluated a large existing database of 3,800 subjects. They found that dual use of both e-cigarettes and traditional cigarettes was an important public health problem. A history of depression, child maltreatment, and poverty were associated with dual cigarette use. Benzo et al. evaluated the feasibility of a home-based pulmonary rehabilitation and health coaching system in subjects with COPD. Subjects with moderate to severe COPD unable to attend in-person pulmonary rehab were enrolled for eight weeks receiving video-guided exercise and health coaching. In 154 subjects, adherence was 80%, which is a very impressive number, but there were no difference in scores for breathlessness. 
there were improvements in self-management abilities. The authors concluded that home-based pulmonary rehab programs are feasible in patients with COPD that cannot attend in-person pulmonary rehab. Of course, through the year of COVID-19 in 2020, um, patients weren't able to attend pulmonary rehab, and this has important far-reaching future um, issues related to pulmonary rehab. Kinnear and others studied home NIV in subjects with thoracic scoliosis over 25 years. They evaluated NIV initiation and survival in a very small group of 53 subjects. Think of that over 25 years, so a five, just a couple of patients a year. The 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25-year survival rates were 96, 88, 61, 46, and 39% respectively. They concluded that home NIV in subjects with scoliosis is well tolerated with a 25-year survival of greater than 40%. Beaumont et al. conducted a double-blind randomized controlled trial comparing local anesthesia to no pretreatment prior to arterial puncture. The primary outcome was pain as measured on a numerical pain scale. There was a decrease in the pain scale with the use of the local anesthetic, but that change was not statistically significant. Camarota and colleagues evaluated tissue Doppler imaging of the diaphragm in subjects passing and failing ventilator liberation. In 100 subjects, extubation was successful in 79%. Subjects who failed extubation showed greater diaphragmatic activation using Doppler imaging. The practical use of this technique by bedside staff needs to be assessed. Acosma et al. evaluated the utility of holistic lung ultrasound in predicting extubation failure in patients successfully passing a spontaneous breathing trial. In a group of 83 subjects, 18% of whom failed extubation, lung ultrasound was a weak predictor of extubation failure. This work does not support the use of, of lung ultrasound to improve the prediction of extubation success, although the timing of, of the performance of the test may be important. We've had several papers about ultrasound in the journal this month and in previous months. Um, and as I said before, this is gonna become an important tool and we need to know how to use it and when to use it. Ferro et al. evaluated transcutaneous carbon dioxide monitoring during different pre-oxygenation methods prior to intubation. In 200 subjects, they recorded the progression of transcutaneous PCO2 from intubation to post-initiation of mechanical ventilation. They found that transcutaneous CO2 variability during intubation differed based on the method of pre-oxygenation. A decrease in transcutaneous CO2 after initiation of mechanical ventilation was associated with post-intubation hypotension. These similar findings have been reported previously using other methods of determining CO2 and reflects how CO2 can be affected by perfusion as well as ventilation. Dean Hess, managing editor, pens a tribute to Robert Kasmerich, who passed away in April. Dr. Kasmerich was the longest serving member of our editorial board and authored over 100 articles in the journal over his career. His contributions were unparalleled, and he will be long remembered. Gianni Adele provided a narrative review of inhaled nitric oxide delivery systems. A number of new systems have been introduced that do not require compressed gas cylinders. Who and others contribute a systematic review of transfusion-related acute lung injury, or TRALI. They identified 13 studies concluding that TRALI was associated with the number of transfusions as well as the infusion of fresh frozen plasma. They concluded that patient factors play a more important role than blood products or blood type. We appreciate you subscribing to the Respiratory Care podcast and editor's commentary, and we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Stay safe. 
To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.